You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. I'm standing on Main Street in my hometown of Walden, Colorado, in this little sunny park next door to the bank. Standing here floods me with memories. Right across the street, I remember getting two cones at the ice cream parlor, one for me and one for my brother, and somehow getting on my bicycle and riding all the way home, no hands, carrying those cones. And over there, playing pool into the wee hours at the Elkhorn the night before I got married. So many memories. But standing next to me today is Helen Williams, and her memories of this Main Street go way deeper than mine. Well, my family moved out here in 1947, so been here 70-some years. Over 70 years Helen's been walking this Main Street, and getting in a lot of trouble here, too, come to find out. She points down to the end of the block. store that's family dollar now was a pool hall when I was a kid, Yuri's Pool Hall. And my friend Jesse and I went in there one night, it must have been 13, and Faye Yuri said, young ladies do not come in a place like this. We said, okay, <laughs> we went away, so. <laughs> Helen points across the street at the movie theater. Its exterior has been remodeled, but the theater hasn't been open for business since I was a kid. I remember seeing Disney movies there. We saw all the Doris Day movies, you know, Moonlight Bay and all that stuff. We were sailing along. We were sailing along. On Moonlight Bay. On Moonlight Bay. Isn't that silly? All the westerns. Daddy took us every Saturday night to the movies, so, uh, and popcorn was 10 cents. The movie cost 24 cents to get in uh, for, for kids. I don't know what the adults had to pay, 74 cents, I think. When she was a teenager, Helen looked forward to Saturday nights when all the ranch hands came into town to spend their paychecks. Needless to say, quite a thrill for the young women in town. Oh boy, the ranch hands are back. <laughs> Including you, I'm Including me, yes. <laughs> and in those days, there were lots of places to spend those paychecks. Main Street was just, was a, just a really lively place. There were... 12 stores on that side, and now there are five. There weren't any empty buildings on Main Street uh, when I was a kid. There were two hangouts for kids, the Roundup and Mankin's Drug Store. 
there were at least four restaurants, um, three bars, four bars. Um, there was a pool hall, and a, at one time there was a jewelry store and a record store. But nowadays, about half of the businesses on Walden's Main Street sit empty. The windows are dark. Old signs advertising long-ago businesses swing crooked. And that just breaks Helen's heart. I often have dreams at night that I'm walking down Main Street, just this block, and every store has a business in it, and there are people all over and everything. It's just wishful thinking, you know? Yes, Helen, I do know. And that's why when a wealthy businessman from Oklahoma named Jim Moore came to town in the late 90s and started buying up some of these empty storefronts, people like Helen and me, we felt hopeful. Maybe someone had come to save our hometown before it disappeared altogether. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. It wasn't easy getting an interview with Jim Moore. He's an extremely private guy, like many in the ultra-wealthy class. But I don't give up easily. I texted with his manager off and on for weeks. At one point, he turned me down flat. But then, at the 11th hour when I'd totally given up, my phone rang. My husband looked at the screen. Someone from Tulsa, he said, and we both knew exactly who it was. I set up a meeting, and finally, I sit down with Jim Moore in the lobby of his second-floor hotel, the Antlers Inn on Walden's Main Street. A lovely space with lots of natural log and stone everywhere. Jim has a friendly smile, but strikes a large, rather imposing figure. He's got pure white hair combed straight back and wears a button-down turquoise shirt. We sit in leather chairs facing each other. Jim says he's shocked at himself for agreeing to do this interview. I can't believe I'm doing this interview. <laughs> I can't believe you are here. You, you have gotten something that no one has been able to get. I mean, Discovery Channel couldn't get it. No one else. I can't say why he agrees. Maybe because I'm a hometown girl and he owns a good chunk of that town. Anyway, I start by asking him about the first time he laid eyes on North Park. He says he remembers that day vividly. His wife's family owns oil fields in the south, but she loves horses. And when she happened to see a ranch with an equestrian center for sale in a horse magazine, they made the trip out. That was in the mid-90s. Drove up Poudre Canyon. It was absolutely gorgeous. Came to the front end of the ranch and uh, had no idea what was beyond the gates. But the view was so incredible. The weather was incredible. Ray was in the background. Ray was in the background. If you ever watched the Chubby Chase movie Vacation, as he toured us through the ranch, uh, I would have swore someone was releasing elk and deer and moose and foxes to have us experience that wildlife. We just came back and said, yeah, we'll take it. They'd already visited mountain towns like Aspen and Vail and weren't inspired by what they found there. Went to all these places that were very vibrant, and um, I would say we didn't have a good feeling about the attitude of the people. 
people in Walden were real. If you broke down, they would stop and help you. Anyone would help you do anything. And that's, we're very, my wife came from a small town of 600. And I grew up in a blue collar family, working seven days a week to put my way through school. So we identified more with the the people in this community than we did with people with their nose up in there. Soon after that, he started building his house on the land. He had big dreams for the place. I'm kind of an amateur architect, so I, um, I drew the facility, picked out the logs. Um, and so you kind of designed this home? I designed it from, from the bottom up. And the log home he ended up designing, it's, well, it's going to be 150,000 square feet. Yes, you heard right, 150,000. To put that in perspective, the footprint is as large as three football fields. There's two bowling lanes. Uh, there's two theaters, ballroom, uh, billiards room, and then my favorite room, which is the Scotch and Cigar Room. And at the center of the house is a massive varnished tree holding up the ridge beam in the library. He says he trampled around the forest on Vancouver Island in search of it. His first choice was too big, but even his second choice was so big they had to have pace cars in front and back of the semi to get the tree here. And the drive from Canada took five days. I remember seeing it come through town. Did you? Yes. It yeah, was, it was, I think everybody stopped and just watched that <laughs> go through It's town. a pretty magnificent tree. That tree was nearly as wide as Main Street. Cars going the other direction had to pull over to let it pass. So yeah, it's hands down the largest log home in North America. Maybe the world. I actually witnessed these early days of construction on the building. There might not be sawmills or coal mining jobs here anymore, but there's plenty of work building giant log homes for the wealthy. In the late 90s, my husband Ken and I lived in North Park. Ken got a job on Jim's construction crew, and I visited him out there. It felt like a commercial complex going up in the forest. For a few weeks, Ken worked building Jim Moore's foundation. It took a year to pour, and they poured more concrete than the entire county combined. Ken worked for a guy named Bruce Perriman, and Bruce remembers Jim Moore fondly. I talked to Bruce on his deck under a big cottonwood. He was very hands-on, actually. A story about him is, if you did know who he was, you'd be thinking, who is this guy who is, you know, not on any crew, but you're sitting there and you're digging a ditch, and he picked up a shovel and started digging the ditch with you. Jim would do that. He would jump right in, hands-on, and help. But Bruce did start to notice some problems getting the house completed, like the roof. Jim, story goes, searched the country, probably the world, for um, a copper sheeting that he could put on his roof, found a company in Arizona who could do it, and the gentleman told him, yeah, we can do it, and no problem, we'll put you on the list in your year and a half, two years out. So Jim bought the company so that he was number one on the list. (laughs) 
And then months, if not, you know, a few years later, he changed his mind and wanted to switch to this old tiled roof that he had found back on the East Coast. Uh, so he scrapped the copper idea and went with the tile, but the house wasn't engineered for that extra weight. So I remember being out there one time, and they had their welder guy going back in and re-supporting uh, structural logs, that adding these bases and rod to it so that the structural logs could handle that additional roof load just because he changed his mind about the roof. Wow. That was a crazy decision. Yeah. Or maybe not crazy, but an expensive decision. Yeah. But there was a lot of that. Jim admits these kinds of decisions slow things down, but he says it's all part of his creative process. Meanwhile, someone in Walden approached him about buying one of the restaurants on Main Street. But soon after he bought it, it burnt down. At that point, I had to decide whether to rebuild it, and the community needed it, so we rebuilt it into what's called the River Rock today and expanded it to twice the size and then built a hotel above it called the Antlers Inn. And we built everything to make it look like it had been here for a long time. And I think we're successful in that, and it's been a very popular restaurant and hotel. In the late 90s, Jim remodeled the cafe with logs left over from his log home project, which, yes, he was still working on simultaneously. The new cafe really perked up Main Street. My mom and dad had rescued a building from demolition a block and a half away and opened an Orvis fly fishing store. Bruce's girlfriend fixed up an old house as a yoga and massage studio. It felt like maybe something grassroots was starting to happen in Walden, that this town might be able to rise from the dead. Then, the old movie theater went up for sale. Bruce decided he wanted to get in on the action, even though it was in bad shape. It was like someone turned the light off in the 80s and shut the door and never went back. So the old projectors were still up there, reels laying around, the old chairs were there, just ragged. But it was still a beautiful old theater, and he had a vision for what it could be. Remodel the interior to have more of a cabaret seating that would facilitate things like dinner theater, plays, uh, have more table seating, have a better kitchen that could actually put some food out. You wouldn't be relying on a neighboring kitchen. Upgrade the projectors so that you could show modern-day films on it. Screen, stage for live music, things like that. So Bruce put together a community survey to see what people wanted to do with the theater and got a lot of positive feedback. He even got a green light on funding the project. I brought in a business partner, a buddy of mine who I'd known for a long time, who owned a brokerage company up in Cheyenne. And he signed right on. So he was going to, you know, my little bit of money and his whole bunch of money. And, and we could have got the doors open anyway. So, you know, you had this idea, you had a partner, you had the money kind of lined up. Uh, you had the buy-in from the community. And then what happened? Uh, it sold to Jim Moore. Yeah. That's right. Jim Moore bought it before Bruce could even after he'd done all that very public legwork. Then soon after that, the same thing happened when Bruce went to buy the laundromat down the street. That was going to be one that I was going to do by myself. 
and offered a price that uh, Chris Christofferson, who owned it, that's what he wanted. And a day or so later, he called me back and said that he had another offer, it's a cash offer, but since I had made the first offer that if I could come up with cash and make it a cash deal, then I could have it. But I couldn't do that. So that one sold to the mystery buyer who he later told me was Jim Moore. FYI, that's not the famous Chris Christopherson that you might be imagining. But Bruce, being the laid-back guy that he is, he took this all in stride. Well, at that time, people was still very excited to have Jim in town because he was buying properties and the hope was he was going to do something with them and that he could do things with them that, you know, priority one was not a profit. It was just revitalizing the town. We thought that's where his passion was. So when he would get a property and I wouldn't, I thought, well, that's great. At least somebody who can get it up and running faster, better probably than I could is going to shepherd that project and see it to completion. But that's not exactly what happened. Yes, in the early 2000s, Jim was still buying storefronts. When it went into foreclosure, he bought the iconic Elkhorn Cafe and Bar, the one that was still hosting live music on Saturday nights and where all the old-timers met for coffee every morning. He started working on the movie theater, remodeling its exterior, the Village Inn Hotel, the Phoenix Gas Station, the Electric Company building. All told, Jim bought 14 businesses on Main Street, about a third of the total storefronts on the main drag. I'm totally invested in Walden and in Jackson County. I'm sure a lot of people wonder why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, that is my question. Um, <laughs> it's certainly not to make money because it's very difficult to make any money in any business in a small town. But it's really, I, I like to build and I like to create and I want to create whatever contribution I can make to Walden to make it a better experience for everybody that lives here. Some of these stores were still open for business when he bought them, like the Elkhorn. But even after he closed it down, people gave Jim the benefit of the doubt. Why? I can't really say. Maybe because we all needed to believe in a town savior. A friend told me when she saw Jim Moore walking down the street, he struck her as regal, like the king of Walden. Talking to townspeople, I heard echoes of that. For your listeners, this man is a legend. He's a great guy. One of the, the kindest guys I've ever met. I would think he did it out of the kindness of his heart, you know, but, but I don't know for sure. But in 2005, progress on remodeling Jim's properties on Main Street came to a halt. Years went by. Then a decade passed. Then a decade and a half. If Bruce had bought the movie theater, he couldn't have afforded to let it sit this long. He would have been forced to realize his vision, to pay his bills. But because Jim Moore didn't have that financial pressure, it sat there, half remodeled, storage for his restaurant. And his log house, too. Work on it stopped as well. It sat in the woods, abandoned and unfinished. Everyone had a theory about why Moore had disappeared, even Helen Williams. His son had some sort of illness that needed medical attention that he couldn't get up here. So he moved back to Tulsa. But I also heard that he ran out of money. 
He gave up on the town for a while because he got in an argument with the previous mayor about a tax situation. That was Mayor Jim Destin talking there. And yeah, I started to wonder if there was some tax benefit to sitting on a lot of defunct businesses in the middle of nowhere. Maybe this was all part of some nefarious plan, a loophole, so the wealthy can get out of paying taxes or something. I got a hold of a corporate attorney, George Moxery, and laid out for him everything that I had been learning in my research. Unless there's some kind of money laundering or, or, or fraud or something like that going on, something nefarious, there wouldn't really be a reason for Mr. Moore to, to spend a dollar on these businesses to get, you know, a, a 20, 30, 35% tax write on So it, it wouldn't make sense for him to do that. George says the reason is probably much more simple. He's perfectly within, it, within his rights to buy these properties, to buy these businesses. And, you know, presumably he, he's thinking that he wants to do something with them, but, but he's just negligent, let's say. Negligent might not be exactly the right word, but he's just lax somehow in, in doing them. Actually, the word negligent is an interesting word. There's nothing illegal about letting a Main Street fall into disrepair and damaging the town's economy. It's just neglectful. Maybe Jim bit off more than he could chew, like he did with his house. But all this was speculative. All the town knew was that that grassroots energy on Main Street had died away. In the early 2000s, my mom Carol tried to salvage that energy. She offered to buy some of Jim's businesses. I talked to her about her plans one day as we drive up and down Main Street. We're counting the number of empty storefronts. Okay, okay so, so those are closed. Those are closed. Theater, the theater, and the center are both closed. Caps is so closed. that's uh, so that's three out of thirty-four businicks. Jim owns fourteen. Sure, his restaurant and hotel are still open for business, but half of the fourteen are either boarded up or not currently open for commercial business. My mom says she reached out to Jim's manager and offered to buy the Elkhorn. She thought that he, that he would be willing to sell it for what he bought it for. And then she had trouble getting hold of him. When she finally got hold of him, he said, I don't want to sell any of my mountain properties. My mom also tried to buy the old Fina gas station. It's on a prominent corner, and she wanted to landscape it to improve the town's vibe. This wasn't a pipe dream. She'd already remodeled two historic buildings in the county. She wanted to put in a pottery store to sell her artwork. But instead, the Fina gas station still sits empty today. It's true that Jim's empty businesses didn't cause the town's slide into decline, but it sure didn't help. After he disappeared, the two grocery stores in town closed down, one then the other. For a couple years, people were forced to drive 60 miles over a mountain pass to get basic food and supplies. The school lost so many kids, they closed down the elementary school and put them all in the high school. Police saw an uptick in drug and alcohol cases and theft. And the median household income sank well below the rest of the state's. About 10 years ago, my husband Ken and I went cross-country skiing on the National Forest near Jim's log house. From the trail, we could see it. It was still unfinished, plastic billowing over the windows, a winter storm blasting in. It was amazing to me to see such an expensive home left to the elements like that. 
Around the same time, Bruce also visited the house, but he got an even better look at it. He was having dinner with a friend who was caretaking the place. He said, hey, do you want to go see the house? So we snow machined over there. Took the tour of that house, basically in the dead of winter, uh, to see what had become of, uh, become of it. And there was no doors, no windows, no roof covering. It looked it like animals like were oh, really? moving in. Animals were moving in. Oh yeah. We didn't see any animals, but it was dark and cavernous, and at any moment you were expecting some bear to, you know, be disturbed uh-huh. in December. <laughs> you know. It wasn't long after that night tour that Bruce decided to move away from Walden, taking his entrepreneurial spirit with him. Now he lives in Fort Collins, Colorado, 100 miles away. His compulsion to create new things is still very much intact. He raises yaks to sell their wool and meat. What's a yak, you ask? It's like a steer with crazy hair. What do you do with yaks? Well, you pat them and you love them <laughs> and you fix the fence after they go through it. Uh, yeah, it looks What are you guys doing? So this one's big baby. And he wasn't this the only young innovator that bailed on Walden around that time. Lots shabby. of us did, including right me now. and Ken. My mom tells the story of running into a woman in neighboring Steamboat Springs who asked her about Walden. I somehow let her know that I was from Walden, and she said, you know, oh, I hear that there's some rich guy is buying up all the buildings in Walden and is really uh, fixing it up so that it's going to be really, really a nice town. And what and did you like, say? <laughs> I said, no. He bought up all the, those buildings on Main Street and boarded them up, and he's killing the town. I honestly believe that. I think he has killed mm-hmm. Walden. In fact, my mom got so frustrated watching those buildings sit year after year that one time she approached the town's mayor, Jim Dustin, at a community meeting. We've gotten grants to be able to figure out how to help the economy. And nothing ever happens, but we were at a meeting, it was just locals, and I I had thought about that condemnation thing and all the buildings sitting vacant on Main Street really impacting the economy of Walden. So I asked Jim, because they had condemned people's houses, so I asked Jim, why couldn't we condemn the stores on Main Street that were just sitting empty and slowly getting run down? and. Jim Dustin said, I'm kind of a libertarian in that way, and I don't believe the government should get involved. The corporate attorney I talked with, George Moxery, he agreed that condemning buildings is really the only avenue small towns might have in a situation like Walden's. In an email to me, Mayor Jim Dustin pointed out that the town has demolished two buildings on Main Street recently, but only when they became dangerous. Neither of them belonged to Jim Moore. The mayor told me, quote, just because a storefront is empty doesn't give the government the right to come in and condemn it, end quote. But actually, there's a long tradition in the American West of not getting involved when the super wealthy start buying stuff up. Jim Moore isn't North Park's only rich guy, but the others aren't so interested in buying up Main Street as buying up all its land. Jim Dustin says there's a club of them. They used to call it the Club of 26, uh, because there's 26 millionaires. 
And they have supported the fire department single-handedly, fire and rescue department. When they need a new truck, fire chief goes out and, and asks him, and he usually, I think he always gets the money he needs for that. And they have supported the airport big time because they need it. <laughs> Anything to, to make us grow, you can't hurt. <laughs> That's Jim Moore's former crew manager, Todd Larson. I talked to him on the phone about it. He sees the Club of 26 as kind of a boon for North Park. And, you know, the, the way I look at it is even the people who buy cabins up here but don't live here, well, they're paying taxes here and they're providing a tax base to services, but they're not using the services, so therefore they're kind of uh, generating uh, more resources for the county without actually using them up, if, if that makes sense. These things might be true, but I can't help wonder, what's the use of stockpiling all those taxes if you don't have a community to spend them on? I recently had a fascinating conversation with the sociologist Justin Farrell, who did an ethnographic study of the rich who are moving into Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Justin wrote a book on the subject called Billionaire Wilderness, The Ultra-Wealthy and the Remaking of the American West. I met up with Justin in a quiet study room on the campus of my alma mater, Colorado State University. Justin looks like a quintessential Western guy. Thick, black mustache, plaid shirt, the works. He told me it was just as hard for him to interview the West's very wealthy as it was for me to interview Jim. It took him years, but finally, he put together a clear-eyed portrait of the super wealthy who are migrating to the West. I tell him all about my hometown. He explains that the wealthy really do want to conserve the nature and culture of the West, but maybe not for the benevolent reasons that we all think. They want to protect their experience of nature, which is this kind of elite, high-taste sort of experience of nature, whether it's like the Tetons represent that. It's, it's um, a very ecologically pristine area obviously it's the best you can get like a nice fine wine if you're into wine it's the you know the top of the line basically what it comes down to is the american west has the best views that money can buy reminds me of jim's reaction to first seeing his ranch at the foot of the Rewa mountains it really is one of the finest views anywhere. Rockefeller, back when he you know, secretly bought up all the ranches that became Grand Teton National Park, that became a paradigm of conservation for a lot of these people. They hear about that, they read about that. I call them in my book, New Rockefellers. They're, they want to essentially do what he did, and they're trying to do it in Montana. They're trying to do it in Idaho. Uh, where there is private land available and maybe more ranches. It's more about them and their identity, whether it's um, the notoriety that comes with that, um, being like Ted Turner, perhaps this dream that they've had to own a, a chunk of the American West, to actually own it. But Justin says there's this weird contradiction to that desire to own the West, he says they also come here because it makes them feel like regular people. That was something I encountered that actually surprised me. I kept hearing over and over again in, in the interviews, like, I'm just a normal person. I come here to be normal. 
I want to be normal, just over and over, normal, normal. And when I would go to events, they would, you know, not all of them, but uh, many had on like jeans and Wrangler jeans sometimes, cowboy boots. I really found one of the main themes in the book had to do with authenticity and trying to kind of become that different person that they perceived to be as, as authentic. Jim did express that attraction to Walden's people, calling them real. And he pointed out his own humble beginnings. But Justin found that Jackson's ultra-wealthy didn't want to be too authentic. It's all hidden beneath the surface. And that's the way I think a lot of people want it, honestly. I call this you know, the buzzkill effect, that they come to rural paradise. And they, they, maybe they live in Manhattan or maybe they live in, in Los Angeles. They don't want to see poverty. When it comes to true conservation of a place, Justin says the ultra-wealthy aren't thinking big picture. They're thinking about their own needs. Well, what's the moose population in, in Wilson? And if that's declining, you know, they love to see moose. They love to have their, when their friends visit, they, they want to see wildlife. And, and they expect to see wildlife. And so a lot of those issues are just very localized. Jim Moore and North Park's Club of 26, yes, they want to support the services that protect their rural paradise. They want to preserve the Wild West character they moved here for. They want Walden to look presentable in case they bring their business associates to visit. But are they up for the task of rescuing its schools, staunching its slide into poverty and rural despair? I mean, who would want that job? That's not paradise. That's social work. When we come back, we'll find out where Jim's been all this time. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. A year or two ago, out of the blue, Jim Moore returned to Walden. He started working on his log home again, and he remodeled one of the old hotels on Main as a place for his construction workers to live in. Eventually, he says, it'll be a hotel again. Eventually. That's a word that's often on Jim's lips. When I met with him, I asked him, so what happened? Why'd you disappear? He said it was for a bunch of reasons. His business, Worldwide Printing and Distribution, needed him back in Tulsa. And his kids were ready for high school in a bigger city. But the biggest reason, he says, was that an infestation of pine beetles had moved into the West, driven by a warming climate. The beetles descended on his beautiful land, killing vast swaths of the forest all around his lodge. We had 70 people logging for about five years. On your, on your ranch? We were hauling off about 10 semi-loads a day of wood. So it really kind of diverted the energy into mitigation of the beetle infestation so we could quickly get tree regrowth so that it would at some day become more the enchanted forest it was when, when I started. Yeah. And so we aggressively went after the beetles, and I put the lodge on hold. He also put his properties in Walden on hold. It was mothballed for 15 years. Yeah. 
it was about 15 years that it was just we just closed it in and uh, hardly anything was was done in fact all of our plans were put on hold but now that his kids are grown and his business is stable he says he's ready to get back to work will the realtor find me the worst buildings in walden she looked at me and said what do you mean the worst buildings i said i want the worst buildings she says why do you want the worst buildings I said, because I want to make sure that they're fixed up. And I don't want someone to just buy it and leave it the way it is. This struck me as a contradiction, since he'd done the same thing himself. And I wasn't sure why we should trust that he wouldn't do it again. So I pressed him. I mean, some of those did get left for 15 years? While Absolutely. What, what do you say to that? I think I failed in that regard. But because I wasn't here, I would say... I still had in the back of my mind what I wanted to do. But actually what has happened in that same period of time, more buildings went vacant and more buildings deteriorated. So I certainly didn't make a positive contribution during that time period. Uh, but I'm going to make up for it now. I asked him why he refused to rent or sell his buildings during those long years. But he disagrees with that. He says he did rent the auto body shop a few times and had tried to work with the Chamber of Commerce to rent a space too, although that fell through. I can see why that perception might exist, but also didn't want to rent it to some something that wasn't going to be a positive contribution to where I'd like to see the town go. I thought of my mom's vision for the gas station and Bruce's vision for the theater and wondered if these are the kinds of plans that he thought would not align with his vision for the town. I also couldn't help but wonder why his vision takes precedence, even if it has to wait for decades, over the vision of local people. Jim says offers like my mom's were rare. Mostly, people just want him to buy even more of Main Street. For instance, he bought the other restaurant in town, his competition, the Moose Creek Cafe. I tell him that lots of people I've interviewed say it would be healthier for the town to have numerous business owners rather than just relying on one. I would say that's probably true. I think that would be true. It's like the Moose Creek down here uh, is now the Mad Moose. Uh -huh. I bought the real estate, but Alicia Herrera is, and her husband have the restaurant. So... They wouldn't have had the capital to do the changes. So I'm going to be able to provide people with a venue that they wouldn't normally maybe be able to afford. As for the Elkhorn, Moore has no plans to remodel it anytime soon. But Jim says next on his list of projects is finishing the movie theater. And hopefully we'll have a theater for the community, for the school, and for cowboy poets, and just kind of give some flavor of the Old West. To me, it sounds like a lot of irons in the fire, especially with the largest log home in North America to finish up still. But he promises the town will be transformed in the next couple years. He says for guys like him from the wealthy class who buy property in struggling communities like Walden, he feels it's their duty to give back. I think there's a social responsibility for us who have bought those ranches to invest in the community. So this is part of my social responsibility initiative.
talking to Jim, I'm never clear what exactly his vision for the town is. He clearly cherishes the Wild West version of Walden. Old photos of the town decorate the walls of his hotel and cafe. But does he visualize a future, too? Helen Williams, the old-timer who grew up here, she does. In her dreams, she visualizes a different future for her hometown. She was disappointed when the town council turned down an offer to build a marijuana growing and distribution facility here because they were afraid of the message it would send to kids. But that doesn't stop Helen's dreams. She's got other ones. We need a couple of anchor businesses, you know. One of the things I'd love to see is a microbrewery up here. Built on Main Street, I have the lot picked out. <laughs> I only need a million and a half dollars to make it happen. She points down the street at the lot. It's the vacant one right next door to the old auto body shop, owned by Jim Moore. And I can't help but wish that Jim would just call up Helen and listen to each and every one of her wild dreams for the future of Walden. Today, we looked at how the super wealthy are affecting small town main streets in the West, but they're also buying up huge swaths of land across the West for a reason you might not expect. I think anybody in Wyoming can attest to this who is in the outdoors or farming or ranching. You see it every single year. You see things change. That's next time on The Modern West. Do you have a story of how the ultra-wealthy are affecting the American West? Share it on social media at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Aaron Jones. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Micah Schweitzer is the executive producer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.